morning, everyone. How's everyone doing? Good morning, Rabbi. Okay, I'm glad to hear. So I, I was speaking to my father this morning, and I asked he asked me where we're up to in our class, and I told him we finished the Kiddusha, right? The part dealing with the, the holiness, right, that we did last week. The idea of the two different uh, conflicting messages that the angels are focused on, that one of them is focused on Kadosh, 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 that Hashem is holy, 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 very, very holy, far above anything that we can comprehend. And then the second one is Malo Kala Aretz Kivodo, that the entire world is filled with his glory. Right? So seemingly contradictory messages. One, that Hashem is so high up above us. And then two, that the whole entire world is filled with his glory. My father said, I must tell you over the idea that Rev Norman Lamb said. Rabbi Norman Lamb, who died um, about a year ago now, Rabbi Dr. Norman Lamb, he was the head of school of, um, of Yeshiva University for many, many years, and a tremendous Torah scholar and also a, a general scholar. And he says over a beautiful idea related to this. So the Tanakh tells us a story that there was a king whose name was Uziyahu. Now Uziyahu was a king in the times of the first temple period, and he wanted to be Mekadesh Shem Shemayim. He wanted to sanctify God's name. So he said, you know what would be the greatest sanctification of God's name? If I went into the temple as the king, right? As the temporal leader of the Jewish people, I, sa I said, you know what? I'm going to serve as the Kohen Gadol. I'll serve as the high priest. And what I'll do is I'll bring an offering. Because what could be greater than to say that even the king who's in charge of the entire physical world completely subjugates himself to God's will and brings offerings to God. It'd be a tremendous kiddush Hashem, sanctification of God's name. Now, the problem is you could have the best of intentions and your heart could be in the right place. But if you're not following halacha, you're up the creek, right? So what the Kohanim, what the priests told him is, listen, man, you're, you're, you're a king. You're not a priest. Kings are not allowed to bring offerings. Don't do it. And he's like, I am the king and I believe that this is better. I will do it. And so he goes, he sets out to bring the offering. He goes into the temple and he's about to bring the offering and he gets stricken with saras, right? Saras is, you know, to become the, the skin condition that we, we associate with leprosy, right? So he gets stricken with saras. Now he obviously recognizes that if you have saras, you have to leave the temple right away. And what the Talmud teaches is that for the next, not for the Talmud, even the, the, the Tanakh, right? The prophet teaches for the next 22 years of his life until he died, he had saras. He had this skin condition where he was impure, he was not able to serve. And he had to even step down from his position as being the king, as being the leader of the Jewish people. Now, what led to this mistake, right? It wasn't just hubris. He actually had his heart in the right place. He thought that this would sanctify God's name, right? He intended to do this to teach the people how much they have to serve God, that even if the king does so, certainly they have to do so. However, the idea that he could think that the Torah tells us X, Y, and Z, but it's not really that important, was based on a fallacy. It was based on the fallacy that Hashem is up, up, above. Hashem is kadosh, 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 is high up above us. And because Hashem is high up above us, does it really make a difference exactly what we do? If we do this exactly the way the Torah says to do it or not exactly the way the Torah says to do it, what really matters is our heart is in the right places. Right? Does this sound at all familiar? Um, in terms of contemporary Jewish values, right? Certainly does sound familiar. So what happens is though he is stricken with saras, he has to leave the temple. So what happens, Rabbi Norman Lamb says, the idea that we are expressing before we're going to say the Shema, what we express is 
that the Hashem is holy, holy, holy. Yes, that part Uzio had correct. What Uzio did not have correct is that Hashem Malokala Aretz Kivodo, the entire earth is filled with his presence. And since the entire earth is filled with his presence, therefore it is absolutely imperative that we do follow the Torah because Hashem cares about everything that we do, right? Like I said, this is an idea that we need to say right before we're going to be saying the Shema in which we express our Kabbalat, all Malchut Shemayim, our acceptance of the yoke of heaven upon us. Right before we do that, we need to explain what it is that we are accepting. That God is up here, yes, but also down here at the same time. We need to express that fully or else the acceptance is not real. If you say, I believe in God, and somebody, you know, the famous line is um, the, these atheists say, you know, I don't believe in, in your gods, right? And the answer is, I don't believe in those gods either, right? Very often an atheist position of what a God is has nothing to do with what we believe God is. So yes, he believes in God. He believes in a very elevated God and he wants to elevate him even further by doing the offerings. But that's not what Hashem wants because Hashem cares about what we do in this world as well, about the details. He does not just care about the, um, about the overall effect and the overall impact and the overall wishes and desires and goals. Okay. So now we're going to continue where we were left off last week, which is on page 88, 89, right, in English. What we finished with is, Baruch Kavod Hashem Kamo, that blessed is the glory of God from his place. We are now going to finish that first blessing, right, the first blessing of the, the blessings of Shema. And that first blessing is, to the blessed God, they shall offer sweet melodies. Who do we refer to when we say they? We are still referring to the angels, right? So we're literally going through what is it that the angels are, when they are blessing Hashem, what is it that they bless Hashem with, right? We're continuing this concept of what it is that they bless Hashem with and the praises that they offer. Parenthetically, when angels pray to God, right, they are not going to pray to God the same way that we do. There will not be any bakashot. There will not be any requests involved in the angel's prayer. They're only going to have praise, right? They only have praise of Hashem and thanks to Hashem. But it won't be anything more than that because there won't be any need for bakashot, right? For requests from Hashem. Okay. So they offer these sweet melodies. To the king, the living and enduring God, they shall sing hymns and proclaim praises. For he alone effects mighty deeds, makes new things, is master of wars, sows kindness, makes salvations flourish creates cures, is too awesome for praise, is Lord of wonders. In his goodness, he renews daily, perpetually, the work of creation. As it is said, give thanks to him who makes the great luminaries for his kindness endures forever. May you shine a great light, a new light on Zion and may we all speedily merit its light, right? So all that is what the angels say. Now what we say is, uh, I believe this is already what we're saying. May you shine a new light on Zion and may we all speedily merit its light. Blessed are you, Hashem, who fashions the luminaries, okay? Now, this is the culmination of a blessing that really began on page 84, right? The blessing begins on page 84. Just flip back really quickly. With blessed are you, Hashem, our God, king of the universe, who forms light and creates darkness, makes peace and creates awe, okay? So that really begins this blessing that, as we've spoken in the past, is dealing with the physical sustaining of the earth that Hashem does on a daily basis. So that's what this entire blessing has been dealing with. And therefore we have this parenthetic, you know, this interjection in middle to describe how Hashem is so high up, but yet still right here in this world, right? But the entire thrust of this blessing is dealing with the way in which Hashem sustains the physical world. 
Now, the Abu Draham, who is a student of the Balhaturim, of the author of the Sefer, of the book, called the four uh, portions of the Turim, which means rose, literally. What he did is he wrote this uh, beautiful systematic approach to halacha, in which he takes the halacha, which is found throughout the Gemara, and no longer following the system of exactly the way the Gemara lays out the halacha, because the Gemara's halacha, it's interspersed throughout the entire Talmud. So you can have different Talmudic sections that deal with the same topic very far apart, right, in different, different uh, tractings. So what the Torah does is he takes all of the things related to a specific topic and puts it in one area. This is in the 1300s. He is the son of the Rush, Rabbeinu Asher, originally from Germany, who then moves to Spain because of, out of fear that he would end up becoming uh, kidnapped for a great ransom by some of the, some of the, uh, the dukes in, Spain, in Germany of that time. Okay? So his son is Rabbi Yaakov ben Asher. His student is Rabbi David Abu Draham. This is in Seville, Seville Spain in the uh, mid-1300s. Okay, so he writes the, I perhaps, yeah, not even perhaps, definitely the most comprehensive book on Jewish liturgy that we had up until that time. He wrote like, it's like the precursor to Rav Schwab, except far more comprehensive, covers everything in the entire liturgy from beginning to end. He, he collates everything that the previous rabbis had to say, that the Talmud has to say about prayers, does a wonderful job. Now, what he says over here is like this. You think about the seven days of the week, right? If anybody's familiar with what are the seven days of the week that we call them in secular terms, where do we get those names from? In Judaism, we don't call it those names. In Judaism, we call it Yom Rishon, day one, Yom Sheni, day two, right? And it's all just looking forward to Shabbat, day one of Shabbat, day two of Shabbat, day three of Shabbat of the week, and then we end up with day seven of Shabbat. Now, in the secular world, we call it Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then Saturday, right? Now, if you think about it, Saturday comes from Saturn, right? Saturn day, right? Sunday comes from the sun, obviously. Monday comes from the moon day. Now, what are the next four days? They come from Tuesday, T-I-W-S day. Then they come from Wednesday, which we believe to be, think to be associated with Woden, right? Then we have Thursday, which is Thor, right? T-H-O-R. And then we have Friday, which is Freya, F-R-E-Y-A. Right? Those are four of the Germanic or Norse, Norse gods, right? Now, the truth of the matter is that in ancient times, they associated all the days of the week with gods, or alternatively, they associated all the days of the week with different planets. And those four Norse uh, gods, their mythology, each one of those gods is associated with a different planet. Now, what they believed is that each one of these planets had a different aspect that it's shown in and a different element that it would deal with, right? If you think of like Mars as the god of war, right? So if you think of Mars as in terms of an actual god that they would associate with, and also in terms of the planet, what they believed is that that planet had like the control over war. So the days of the week that we actually say today in, in the secular terminology actually is acknowledging a certain level of a division of power between the different manifestations, the different gods who are able to run the world. So this is an emphatic declaration that if you look through it, and, and it, we don't have time to go through each one separately, if you, if you would spend time doing a, some research about each one of the planets, right? So the seven planets that they were able to see in those days, and they were listed in order from what they believe to be closer to, the, to Earth and further away from the Earth, right? Depending on which one moves slower, which one moves faster. 
right? So if you looked at that list and you went through what each one is associated with, you would find that in this prayer, when we talk about God, remember, we're talking about God in the context of having created the luminaries. What we're actually trying to establish is that all of the seven different forces that the nations of the world would associate with different uh, powers and different gods, actually all seven of these come directly from God. He alone affects mighty deeds. He alone makes new things, is master of war. So is kindness, makes salvation flourish. All seven of these phrases right here, right, are all related to different ones of the gods that the nations of the world would associate with each one of these powers. And what we're negating is completely and emphatically saying that all this comes from God, okay? That's what the Abu Dharam explains what's going on over here. Rip Schwab takes a little bit of a different angle. And, and a pretty fascinating angle as well. What Rav Schwab wants to say is like this. Let's go through some of them, right? So he says, when it comes to God is master of wars, right? What does it mean God is master of wars? Yeah, go ahead, Dave. G1 with Rav Schwab. Oh, um, we are on page uh, 284. Thank you. Sure. Okay. So what Rav Schwab wants to say is like this. He wants to explain that when we talk about master of war, what does it mean master of wars? What is the reference to over here? So you could just say that God gets to determine who wins and who loses the war. Rav Schwab wants to say we're actually expressing our belief that God gives us the free will to choose to be evil. Right? Once again, it is this idea that we are trying to understand. We're trying to wrap our minds around to grasp on an intuitive level, that the ability to be evil, that free will to be evil, is also something that comes from God. Right? Remember, Schwab is writing this as a as a German, you know, as a as a refuge. Not he himself was not a refuge. He ended up escaping earlier, but someone who saw what the complete destruction and annihilation. So there is a focus, certainly in his writings, on the idea of the Odyssey and the idea of we have to accept that. And that's something that the sages did focus on as well. So he is focused on that as well over here. So he then describes, right, that he is the um, so's kindness. Now, what does he mean to so kindness? What is this referring to? Rav Schwab wants to say so's kindness makes salvations flourish are one and the same. Because first you sow the kindness and then the kindness will flourish later, right? You sow a seed and then the fruits come up later. What is the fruit? The fruit is the salvation that will flourish, right? Now, what does it mean that God sows kindness? What it means is like this. It means is that when we take an action in life, when we do a good deed in life, the impact of that good deed can be forever. We think of it as <clears throat> you help someone do something, right? You help, uh, you help someone put together their Ikea cabinet, right? No big deal, right? But what we don't realize is that down the line, that person will now help someone else. Down the line, that person will use that Ikea cabinet for good things. And Hashem will give us some sheer of merit for the influence and the impact that our actions will have on others. That means that when someone else does something good because I did something good, Hashem accounts some benefit and reward for the person who causes that to happen. So the action is taken one person, one time, one kindness, but the reward is immeasurable and innumerable and forever. Rav Schwab points out is a beautiful example. We know that there was a fellow who lived, he died um, in 1933. His name was Rabbi Israel Meir Kagan, right? The Chafetz Chaim. And he wrote a book about not speaking Lashon Hara. He wrote that book over 120 years ago at this point. 
That book is read every single day by thousands of people. And there are hundreds of thousands of people who are careful to not speak evil of others because of a book that he wrote 120 something years ago, right? Would he ever have dreamed that it would have that kind of global impact, right? The reward for all of us, whenever we are careful because of this book is certainly partially attributed to him. This is something it's built into the way Hashem created the world, right? That that's how he looks at it. When you do something good, that action will have a rippling effect forever. He then says, God creates cures, right? So God creates cures. This is an interesting idea. The Talmud teaches us that there was a time in, in human history in which there, there actually was not really illness. People would just, one day they would reach the end of their lifespan and they would die without ever having been ill. And people started asking, according to some, it was perhaps Abraham or Yitzchak, they wanted to have a sense of when they would die because then they would know when they could do teshuva, when it's time to start repenting, right? Which on the one hand is a, is a good thing to know that. On the other hand, the Talmud tells us you should do teshuva every day because you never know if today will be the day, right? You know, unfortunately, you know, uh, what we saw yesterday is you never know what could happen, right? And, and people sleep at home in, in Florida and then all of a sudden the building just collapses underneath them, right? So that the Talmud says you have to think of every day as being perhaps your last day and therefore need to do teshuva today as if today's your last day. But what the Midrash teaches is that people wanted to know when they were actually getting closer to dying. So Hashem gave them this ability to have an illness that would let them know you're getting closer to the end. Okay. Now, at that point, though, there was something called the Book of Cures. And the Book of Cures was a book. We don't know exactly what it contained within it. Presumably, it did not have um, a list of herbs. It doesn't sound like that. It sounds like it was more about a, a terms of what sort of prayers one would make that, or what sort of actions one would take to actually heal oneself, perhaps together with some sort of a physical cure as well. And at one point, Chizkiyo HaMelech, right, actually hides away this book because he felt that people were no longer turning to Hashem as much as they should, and perhaps they were too focused on the physical element of the cure and not recognizing that ultimately Hashem wants them to dive into him, right, and to pray to him, and that's really the real thing that he wants to happen, so he hid away that book. So now we no longer have access to that information, but as we can see over the last hundred something years, the medical advances are absolutely insane, and we have a concept called that Hashem creates the refua before the maka. What does refua mean? Refua means the cure before he creates the illness. A beautiful example that um, my friend, um, Dr. Bonnie Rosenberg told me, a beautiful example is mRNA technology had been invented, I, I wanna say probably 10 years ago as a vehicle to perform or to convey the, the, uh, a virus <clears throat> and to help fight against the virus. They hadn't yet figured out what it was going to be used for. They were thinking Ebola, they were thinking HIV, there were different things that they were thinking they could use it for. But they pivoted incredibly quickly when coronavirus came out. And indeed, it's been far more successful. And, and in truth, I think, and I'm not positive about this, but I think it is more successful ultimately. The mRNA has been more successful than any of the other ones that are based on the older technology, which in itself is also a fascinating idea, right? That to take the actual virus and turn it around and actually use it to, to heal, right? That's the concept of Hashem preparing the cure before he actually does the maka, before he does the wound. Okay, so then we say that Hashem, we, we read right now, he creates cures, is too awesome for praise, is Lord of wonders. In his goodness, he renews daily 
perpetually the work of creation. As it is said, give thanks to him who makes the great luminaries for his kindness endures forever. Now, if you notice, the phrase over here is who makes the great luminaries. It does not say he has made the great luminaries. It says who makes the great luminaries. The implication is, as our sages are teaching us in the liturgy, he renews daily, perpetually the work of creation. And how do we know? Because the phrase in Psalms is, he, he uh, makes the great luminaries on a daily basis. So let's look at our source sheet right now. He makes the great lights in, in terms of it being a continuous, a present day terminology, as opposed to being a past tense conjugation of a word. Okay. Um, can I ask just one question? If, if uh, God creates the cure before the Makkah, why would there, what's the point of getting a Makkah in order to get the cure? It's just, you know, maybe we don't need to go through that. Very good question. Why does God need to create a, a, a Makkah in the first place, a, a wound in the first place? I was, about this morning. I was thinking about it this morning. Um, people are saying that having children, people, some strange people, were saying that having children uh, play outside wearing face masks is child abuse. Child abuse, right? So obviously these are people who are anti-maskers in general, but they thought that this is a good point to hit on. Now, and the truth of the matter is they probably are right that having little kids playing outside with masks outdoors is completely unnecessary. That they're right about. In terms of calling a child abuse, it's a little bit of a, of a push to say that it's child abuse, right? Would one say that it's child abuse to make a child wear braces, right? They're engaged in something that's painful. It's not enjoyable. They can't eat candy. They can't eat you know, bubble gum or taffies or anything of that sort. And it's not fun. It's not pleasant. But would you call that child abuse? No, obviously you would say this is necessary for the child's own good, right? So, so too, when it comes to a maca, a wound, this is necessary for our own good. Now, why is it necessary for our own good? So the way the Madrash explains why you have something like a maka come to you, the idea is not that Hashem gives us a maka, gives us a wound or something hard in life. Then we pray to Hashem and then he says, okay, you know what? You're a good boy. You're a good girl. I'll remove it now. The idea is Hashem really wants us to pray to him. Hashem really wants us to develop that close relationship with him. Sometimes the only way to get us to wake up and connect to God, the idea of no atheists in foxholes, right, is to have something that shakes us up and to have something that we have to pray, we have to connect. When you have that genuine moment of connection with God, that creates a different relationship, right? So the idea of having a maka is the idea of trying to have a closer, more intimate relationship that God desires from us. The idea of preparing the cure means that when we will engage in the process of praying to Hashem, when we then are determined worthy of receiving that cure, then Hashem will have the cure come. But to have the cure come into being after we've actually engaged, after we've already become sick, that would be too much of a interaction with the world. Uh, the, the truth is I'm realizing now, I'm, I'm not gonna explain this so well because it's, it's really a little bit of a bigger topic. In terms of like one could ask the question, why can't God create the cure after the maka? Why does God have to create the cure before the maka? Why, why can he create the cure after the maka, right? So, so Alana is asking, if God is going to create the cure, then why not just not give the maka at all? I'm answering that by saying, well, the reason is he actually wants us to turn to him. And that's why he creates the maka, because he wants us to turn to him. The same way wearing braces ultimately is for our benefit. The same way 
things of that nature is ultimately for our benefit. So to <clears throat> the maka is ultimately for our benefit because then we will turn to Hashem. But why does the maka, why does the cure have to be created before the maka? That's a question. Right. Yeah. So just a little point. Uh, makah is not necessarily a wound. It's more like a hit. So yeah. Yeah, just, <laughs> just to You're clarify. Right. You're absolutely right. Okay. So let's continue. Now, what we were saying about God is that he creates or makes the great luminaries. When we refer to the great luminaries, what are we talking about? So now we're going to go through something that has probably puzzled all of you from the very first time you read the Torah. And hopefully we'll get a little bit of a clarity over here. Some of this you might know already. Some of this you might not know. Right at the beginning of the Torah, we read, when Bereshit bara Elohim et et right? When God began to create heaven and earth, the earth being unformed and void with darkness over the surface of the deep and a wind from God or spirit of God sweeping over the water. God said, let there be light and there was light. God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was day. And there was evening and there was day, one day, right? Our first day, right? Now, the obvious question is, one second. If God creates light on day one, then how does he create the sun on day three? Where was the light coming from on day one if God only creates the sun on day three? There's an obvious problem, right? Rashi gives a, an answer. Rashi, right over there on the spot, and God saw the light that it was good, and God caused a division. Rashi says we must depend upon the statement of the Agadah. Agadah means the parts of the Torah, the parts of the oral tradition that come to teach us a hidden message. They convey a hidden message, and it is cloaked in a story that seems to be not just a story. In other words, when we look at the beginning of the creation of the world, we have to understand we cannot read these words just literally and think that it makes sense. It is a deep message the Talmud teaches us that one should not talk about the creation of the world in public. It should be done only in small circles because the clarity that is necessary and the confusion that can arise with a lack of clarity is very detrimental. And therefore what has to be spoken about in a very clear way in a small group of people only orally, okay? So what we're saying is like this. When we talk about this great light, what are we referring to? He saw that the wicked were unworthy of using it, the light. He therefore set it apart, reserving it for the righteous in the world to come, right? So what does it mean that he, what light are we referring to? We're talking about the light. I think the wicked people benefit from light all the time, right? What light are we referring to? What the Agada is teaching us is a great spiritual light. This is not a physical light. This is a spiritual light. The spiritual light refers to the manifestation of God in this world. To the extent that there is more of a manifestation of God in this world, there is a sense of clarity, a sense of justice, a sense of good. But to the extent that there is too much of that sense of clarity, justice, and good, it becomes difficult, if not impossible, for us to exercise free will because our temptation to do wrong is completely wiped out. And therefore, God says, I'm taking the manifestation of myself, this great light, and I am removing it from the world. I am constricting myself. I will set it apart for the righteous in the world to come, in which they will be able to live a spiritual life, right? But this world is not meant to be a spiritual world, or certainly not a primarily spiritual world. It is meant to be a physical world that is elevated in the spiritual sense, right? But it's not meant to be a spiritual world, and therefore I cannot be openly manifested in this world. So that's the very first light. 
Then we get up to verse 14. Let there be, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate day from night. They shall serve as signs for the set times, the days and the years, and they serve as lights in the expanse of the sky to shine upon the earth. And it was so. This is day three, by the way. God made the two great lights. It says two great lights. Then it says the greater light to dominate the day and the lesser night to dominate the night and the stars. So it says the two great lights, but then it says that one is greater, one is smaller, right? So the Midrash is going to address this in a beautiful way. And God set them in the expanse of the sky to shine upon the earth, to dominate the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. So once again, we are seeing the same idea. It is a reflection of what we said at the first day of creation, that God separates between light and darkness, right? And once again, we're saying the same idea. But seemingly earlier, we're referring to something on a spiritual plane. Now we're referring to something on a physical plane. And God saw that this was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, a fourth day. So it's once again, let's look at Rashi. Rashi tells us a very interesting midrash, the great luminaries. First, it says they are the great luminaries, implying that they are of equal size. Then it says one is bigger, one is smaller. The Gemara asks this question, the Talmud asks this question. They were created of equal size, but that of the moon was diminished because she complained and said it is impossible for two kings to make use of one round. What is going on with this midrash? What are we trying to teach us? Rav Schwab explains, and this is really based on Kabbalah, what happens is like this. The sun emits physical light. The moon is emitting spiritual light. The moon actually was its independent source of light. It was not just working as a reflection of the physical light. There was supposed to be a world in which there was equal portions of physical light and spiritual light to be found in this world. When we talk about the moon complaining, we don't mean that the moon itself literally complained. We don't even mean that there's an actual uh, action in which a moon complains. What we mean to say is, is that there is a world in which Hashem says it's not possible to have the spiritual manifestation of light as strong as the physical manifestation of light, of light right now. And therefore, and therefore, what has to happen is first, we're going to have they have a physical source of light and the spiritual source of light will be diminished and lesser than the physical source of light. And in fact, as far as we see, the only thing that we see the moon giving is a reflection of the physical light. And therefore, it will become diminished. In the time to come, the moon will become increased, increasingly large once again, till it will become the same size as a metaphor for the fact that the spiritual light will once again be out and about just as much as the physical light. Not more than the physical light, that will never happen, but the spiritual and physical light will be at the same size. Okay? Yeah, Alana? Quick question. What is Aleph Aleph? It says, Vamra Aleph Aleph, Lishnem Lachim. She stamshu beketer had. What is Aleph Aleph? Probably Adonai Adonai Adonainu. Something along those lines. Yeah, yeah. It's referring to Hashem. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So, what are we saying, though? What we're saying is like this. What we're saying is, is that in the world that we live in right now, it was not meant to be that the spiritual and physical will be equal. It was meant to be that the physical will be dominant, will be predominant, right? Something that we have to be able to live with. We have to be able to take the physical and we have to be able to elevate the physical and bring it to a spiritual plane. But we don't have the assistance in a way that it should be so obvious to us what we should be doing. But in a world to come, it will be different. Kabbalah explains that this is actually a reference to the sun and the moon are a reference to the power of men versus the power of women, right? And when we say the power, we don't necessarily mean physically speaking men and women. We don't even necessarily mean 
men and women per se. We mean what we call the koach, right? The power, the um, the truna, the uh, the essence of femininity and masculinity, right? Where the way that the Torah looks at this is that male power is the ability to give something over to something else, right? Whereas the force of woman is in the ability to receive and form. So in the world that we have today, the male power and the female power are clearly defined as, as, um, as referenced by the sun and the moon. The sun is giving something to the moon and the moon is reflecting that and shedding and giving that light to us. But in the world to come, the power of women who are more spiritual, right? Who have more of what we call a bina yisera, right? A yisera, right? A, um, a, an additional level of intuition. It comes from a spiritual plane. That right now is diminished. It is not something that people respect as much today. The force of a woman to just be, receive, and form is not as respected today in the world. And that is as it should be. That is how God created the world with that intent in mind. But in the world to come, it will once again become equally sized. And the spiritual and physical will be equal. The physical will not be eliminated. It will be equal. Because that ultimately is the goal to reach the time period where we had Adam and Eve if they would have withheld, abstained from eating from the etzadas, from the fruit of the tree of knowledge, they would have been able to continue living forever in that state, in a state where they're in a physical world, but they're elevating the physical world through their spiritual actions. So that's kind of what we're discussing over here. Hashem creates a new every day, these two forces, the physical and spiritual sustaining of the world. What we finish with in this blessing is, May you shine a new light on Zion, and may we all speedily merit its light. What light do we refer to? The light of the spirituality, the light of Hashem's presence manifested in this world. Blessed are you, Hashem, who fashions the luminaries. So we've just finished that first blessing to Shema, and we finished off with a crescendo of ideas, right? With the idea that all of the physical world, everything comes straight from God. But we finished with this, this idea, don't get confused. Don't make the mistake of thinking that the God is up there. The physical world is down here. It's a very big separation. No, in this world, both of them should have been. They should have been equally manifest in this world. A physical and spiritual sense should be completely working together in tandem. However, due to the fact that Hashem recognized that was not possible. So from the beginning, he removes himself from this world to a certain extent. When we are thanking Hashem and praising the luminaries, we are thanking and praising Hashem for the specific structure of how he created the world. And we are recognizing that the lack of sense of the presence of God in this world is part and parcel of how Hashem wanted the world to be. That will only be for now. That's a temporary state. It will go away. And once again, we'll go back to an original state where we will understand the spiritual in the physical of this world. And that's something which we actually did access once or twice. The Talmud in the Dapyomi just taught that the man, the manna that they ate in the desert, it actually was able to be uh, digested by all 248 organs and limbs in the body. They all received on a cellular level a benefit from the manna. And not only that, the manna, there was nothing that was excreted because everything, everything, every aspect of the physicality had a spiritual element of it too. And that was an existence, a plane that we were able to live on when we were in the desert. That is an existence that we will be able to get back to. And that's what we pray for as we build up to Shema is although we live in a physical world, 
We will never make the mistake of thinking that the physical world is all that exists or that the physical world is more important. We always understand that the ideal would be for the physical and spiritual to be on equal levels. And that's something that we pray for. That's something that we request for as we build to reaching the Shema. And then we'll, as we get to the next blessing, which next week, Bezrat Hashem, we will learn, which is going to be about the Torah. Because what the Torah does is, obviously, is takes the physical, takes the spiritual, and builds a connection, builds that bridge that we can live that physical life while also getting to the spiritual life as well. Okay, okay very good. Take care, everyone. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. <laughs>